are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi everybody, David Guzik here. So glad that you could join me on this Thursday afternoon. Uh, We're doing a YouTube Live, as is my custom, on a Thursday afternoon. It's 12 noon here in California. I'm at my home in the Santa Barbara area of California, and we are doing what we like to do on Thursday afternoons. Last Thursday, I was away at a family camp at the beautiful Forest Home uh, Conference facility, and I wasn't able to do it. Besides, it was the 4th of July, which is a holiday here in the United States. So the next uh, YouTube Live had to await for today, July 11th, 2019. So I'm glad you could join me. Uh, As I'm going to do often on our YouTube Live sessions, I want to begin with sort of an opening question that has come in through social media or some other way. And and I want to deal with a question to open with that's um, a difficult question, not that it's difficult to answer from a biblical perspective, but it's a difficult question because it hits uh, very much uh, hard at the heart of people in the midst of a lot of tragedy. And the question I want to deal with today is, does suicide equal hell? In some religious systems, in some religious systems within the broader sphere of Christianity, it is taught that suicide means a person automatically goes to hell. Uh, No ifs, ands, or buts. If a person commits suicide, that's what is termed to be a mortal sin. And uh, under a mortal sin, you just go to hell and there's no forgiveness for it. Now, uh, I I think this is wrong thinking, though I kind of understand it on a couple bases. The idea fundamentally is that suicide is self-murder. And the idea is being that murder is such a substantial sin, what in the Roman Catholic system is known as a mortal sin, a death sin, if you will, that it's such a mortal sin, death sin, that if you commit it and have no chance to ask for forgiveness, then you're going to go to hell. So that's one idea. The other reason why I think this was stressed in the Roman Catholic Church and in other places was that it was meant to be a discouragement to people committing suicide. And I'm sure that through the centuries, there's been more than a few people who have not committed suicide because they were absolutely convinced by the Roman Catholic Church or some other religious institution that if they did, they'd go straight to hell. And and we would never want the biblical truth, because let me just be very upfront with you, I don't believe the Bible teaches that suicide equals hell. But I don't want that teaching for a moment, for a moment, to encourage anybody towards suicide. What a tragic thing that would be. Because make no mistake about it, suicide is a sin. Suicide is self-murder. It's putting the power of life and death into your own hands when God demands that it never be put into the hands of mankind except under justifiable circumstances such as a judicial execution. The Bible does argue about the death penalty, and maybe that's a subject we'll discuss another time. Uh, And also in the sense of a justified warfare, the Bible gives examples of that as well. 
or of a killing of self-defense, which we discussed the last time we had a YouTube live session. So any unjustified killing is murder, and it's a sin. Make no mistake about it. Suicide is a sin. I just don't believe that it should be regarded as the unforgivable sin. There is one unforgivable sin that the Bible speaks about, and that is essentially the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which would be, and I guess this is another great question for us to deal with on another uh, question and answer time, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? But the idea is simply this, that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the continued, repetitive, established rejection of who Jesus Christ is as witnessed to us by the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible does mention a few occasions of suicide. The one that comes to my mind most immediately is in 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 23, about the man Ahithophel, who's a fascinating figure in the scriptures. But it says this in verse 23 of 2 Samuel 17. Now, when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and he hanged himself and died and he was buried in his father's tomb. There's no doubt about it here. Ahithophel committed suicide. And I don't have any problem saying that Ahithophel's suicide was sin. Now, it's fascinating about this. And I remember reading a sermon by Charles Spurgeon on this very text. And he's noting the irony between the fact that Ahithophel did a very wise thing. He put his household in order. And then he did a very unwise thing. He killed himself. He hanged himself. And Spurgeon used that as a example of how it is possible for a person to both do something that is very wise and then very foolish, sometimes connected with the same action. In any regard, we know that suicide is a sin because it is self-murder. And God has commanded us, you shall not murder. That's Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Yet, as I said before, suicide should not be regarded as an unforgivable sin. And we have to admit that many times in the case of suicide, there is a terrible tragedy involved. Anyone who does commit suicide has, has clearly given into the lies and the deception of Satan, the devil himself, whom the Bible says it is his purpose to kill and destroy. Nobody ever committed suicide at the leading of God. Now, I know that there is a satanic thought that is whispered in the ears of many people. And the satanic thought is something like this. Uh, listen, you, uh, you are too much of a burden in this world. It would be better for God and everybody else if your life was over. Do a favor for God. Do a favor for everybody else and just end your life. I'm here to tell you that that is a lie from the pit of hell. God has never enticed a person to suicide. Now, I want you to think about this, and especially anybody who would contemplate suicide because of the great emotional trauma and difficulty in their life. I want you to recognize this, that suicide doesn't take away the pain. Rather, it puts the pain on other people. Dear friend, if you're contemplating suicide, all I can say to you is don't do it and get help. If you're having serious 
thoughts about ending your own life, you need to get help. You need to reach out to somebody who can speak a sympathetic way and put you in touch with, with healthcare professionals who can help you in this area. But I'm here to tell you, as a man who I believe knows the Bible and, and, and has walked with many people through pain and difficulty, it is not God's will that you would end your own life. Even if God's plan does not mean that hell, excuse me, that, that, uh, that suicide automatically equals hell, then it's still not right to do it. It's sin. It's defeat. It does not, at least in the immediate picture, ever advance the cause of God. I think it's very interesting that Job, in all of his suffering, he several times in the book of Job expresses the wish that he had never been born. Now, that's not exactly a wish for suicide, but it's close to it. Job wished that he had never been born because he saw no meaning. He saw no purpose in his suffering. Now, this is what I understand. The book of Job in its fullness tells us that there was meaning in the suffering of Job. There was a purpose of God in it. Job just couldn't see it. And dear friend, I'm here to tell you that if you think that there's no meaning or purpose in the difficulties, in the suffering, in the pain that you endure, if you feel that there's no meaning or purpose in it, I'm here to tell you that if you surrender it to God, there will be meaning and purpose in it, even if you can't see it. The desire to have meaning and purpose, even in the worst things in our life, that's not a wrong desire, but the demand for us to see and comprehend that purpose, sometimes that is beyond us, and it is only with the hand of God. Just remember that according to John chapter 10, verse 10, that it is the devil's work to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Nobody who's contemplating suicide should think that it's the voice of God leading you to do it. Please, in the name of Jesus, get help. You need to do it. So I, I hope that deals with that question. It's kind of led to several other questions that we'll be able to ask and deal with in upcoming weeks. But right now I'm going to turn over to our chat window and see what we have here in the side. William McDonald says, hello, Pastor Dave, and hello back to you, William. Uh, Jared says... Hey, David, always love your videos. What podcast do you listen to or recommend? All right, Jared, I'm going to make a confession here. May I confess? I don't listen to any podcasts with great regularity. I know that in this day and age, that makes me something of a dinosaur, but all I can do is answer accurately and for what I actually am. I don't listen to many podcasts at all with great regularity. Now, I bounce around. Sometimes I'm interested in podcasts having to do with apologetics. Sometimes I'm interested in, in a particular sermon or message. But, but I just don't listen to podcasts. I, I can recommend a few. Now, one of the best podcasts out there is one that's having to do with church history. And it's done by my good friend, Pastor Lance Ralston of Calvary Chapel Oxnard. Lance and I have been dear friends for decades, and we kind of started in pastoral ministry together. And through the years, we've taught each other a lot. My friend, Lance Ralston, has an amazing podcast on church history called Communo Sanctorum. It, you, you can find it wherever you find your podcast. Just search for his name, Lance Ralston, R-A-L. 
S-T-O-N. Amazing podcast. And then, of course, I am involved with something called the Expositors Collective, and they have a good podcast that they issue weekly, and it's a great listen to as well, the Expositors Collective podcast. But I'm not dialed in to listen to a particular podcast every week or no matter how they issue it. Uh, I am, frankly, more of a reader than a listener. So when I'm trying to intake information, normally I'm better at it when I can read it rather than when I can uh, really listen. Um, when I listen to things, it's usually in the background. While I'm doing other things, and I'm kind of half listening to it, half giving attention to other things. So I hope that's helpful for you, Jared, and hope you find some podcasts that you really like. Uh, Dante leaves a question, and he says, Hi from Peru, Pastor David. Greetings, Dante. Glad you could listen to us. Thanks for the resources you provide. Hope you can come to Peru someday. Well, Dante, I would love to come to Peru someday. Uh, my calendar is actually pretty full. Uh, praise the Lord. I've got a lot of work to do both here at home and then when I get the chance to travel and especially meet with other pastors and leaders. But uh, I would love, I hear about good things happening with people I know in Peru and uh, I'd love to visit there sometime. So thank you for that, Dante. It gives me the opportunity to remind our YouTube audience that uh, the, the main ministry, the main work that I have is an online commentary on the entire Bible. You, you can read it at EnduringWord.com. It's also available on the Blue Letter Bible. But at EnduringWord.com or the Blue Letter Bible, you can find my commentary on the entire Bible. And that commentary is also translated into Spanish. Again, available at EnduringWord.com, a complete commentary on the entire Bible translated into Spanish. So let other people know about it because I like it when people use it. All right, Andrea uh, asks a question, is that a Billy Graham bobblehead? And Andrea, the answer to that question is yes. I got a, another bobblehead to rotate in from time to time, and it is a Billy Graham bobblehead uh, put there in honor of the fact that I was just at Forest Home doing a family camp. Forest Home is a well-known Christian camp and conference center uh, in the San Bernardino Mountains outside of Redlands and Yukaipa, uh, that kind of area out there. And I was just there for a family camp this last week. Forest Home is the place where Billy Graham had a pivotal experience with God uh, right before, shortly before his famous 1949 uh, Los Angeles crusade, which, you know, some people kind of tell you that that crusade made Billy Graham Billy Graham. It, it, it put him into prominence on the national and international scene. Now, I have a great interest in Billy Graham at Forest Home in 1949 because another man there was a great hero of mine, J. Edwin Orr. And I'm going to do a special YouTube video uh, in coming days, weeks, whatever, about the untold story of Billy Graham's experience at Forest Home 70 years ago. But that'll come up soon. So yes, that is a Billy Graham bobblehead behind me. Brian says, Pastor David, can you recommend some reference material on the reliability of the Bible? Thanks. You know, there's a lot of great material out there on apologetics sites. Uh, when it comes to apologetics, to me, one of the best guys out there on YouTube is 
a guy named Mike Winger. I strongly recommend his YouTube channel. Mike deals with these Bible questions and apologetics-oriented issues. I'm sure he has several videos relevant to the theme of the reliability of the Bible. One of the best little books I found is one by F.F. Bruce, who was a great scholar of a previous generation. F.F. Bruce, uh, the, the, I think it's titled, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? Or The Reliability of the New Testament Documents. It's a little book, but man, he gets right to the point. And the great thing about F.F. Bruce is not only is he, uh, or was he, I should say, because he's gone on to glory, not only was F.F. Bruce a brilliant scholar, but he was also a historian, and he knows how to weigh the historical evidence. Uh, William Geisler, who, by the way, just passed away this last week, went to heaven. God bless uh, Geisler and the great work that he did. But Geisler and Nix, in their general, general, I should say, not general, general introduction to the Bible, uh, have a fantastic section on the reliability of the New Testament documents. So those are the ones that come to mind, the small work by F.F. Bruce, and then the one by Geisler and Nix, a general introduction to the Bible. Uh, for more than that, I would really, as I said before, check out Mike Winger's YouTube channel. He's got a lot of great information and he really researches his well his stuff very well. Uh, next up, we got a question from Levy who says, David, I have a question. Can the Lord forgive someone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit if they repent? And what happens to someone who commits this sin? Will they know they have committed it? Okay, Levy, I think that's a great question. And I think at another time, I'm going to use that for my lead question in another YouTube broadcast. But let me give a brief answer to your question right now. First of all, can the Lord forgive someone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit? Well, I think it's important for us to define what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Because we have a whole set of scriptures that we need to kind of reconcile together. It's very important for us to understand that when we're addressing a topic biblically, we don't use one set of scriptures to cancel out another set of scriptures, uh, unless there's some clear uh, idea that something is replaced or fulfilled, such as we have Jesus fulfilling the ceremonial or the sacrificial law. But what I'm just trying to say is that we have passages of scripture that tell us that God will forgive anyone who confesses their sin and comes to them. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a tremendous promise that is. God promises to, con to, uh, to forgive the person who comes and confesses their sin. Okay, that's number one. But we also have passages of Jesus himself speaking in the gospels about this sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that God will not forgive. Now, when we put the whole picture together, I think we come back to this idea. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the repeated, settled rejection of the testimony of the Holy Spirit as to who Jesus is and what he came to do. In other words, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the rejection of Jesus Christ himself as a settled basis. Now, if someone confesses their sin to God, he's promised to forgive it. Therefore, if in the past I have rejected Jesus Christ, 
but confess that sin before God now and ask him to forgive, he promises to forgive it. But that means that I have not truly committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because I did not stay in that rejecting state. But if somebody does stay in that status of rejecting and rejected when it comes to Jesus Christ, then friends, that is a sin that will not be forgiven. So I hope you catch my drift here. To answer the question, if someone has rejected Jesus, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, so to speak, in the past, confess their sin, God promises to forgive. But then it says, if they repent, what happens to someone who commits a sin? Will they know they have committed? Well, that's a very interesting thing. Can you know if you have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I suppose that many or most of the people who have committed the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit are not consciously aware of it. Now, they may know that they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus Christ, that they know. But do they actually know that they are guilty of this great sin and the consequences? I have no doubt that Satan does everything he can to blind their eyes from that truth about these consequences. Now, nevertheless, please think about this, that though it may be that many people do not know if they have committed the sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you can know that you haven't committed that sin. And you know how you know that you haven't committed that sin? by accepting Jesus Christ right here, right now, by repenting and asking him to forgive your sins, which is really what we mean when we say accept Jesus Christ. We're not just saying, oh, go over on the Jesus team or add him into your life. What we mean when we say receive or accept Jesus Christ is to repent of your sins and to put your trust in who Jesus is and what he came to do, especially what he did at the cross and the empty tomb. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I think it's a very interesting and significant point that you bring up here. Thanks for that question, Levy. Okay, let me keep going here. Uh, let me make sure I get to the next question. Joanne says, Pastor, a brother in Christ posts writings of others without attributing to them. At one time, only female authors and now all. I don't want to dismiss the words, some very good, yet hesitant. Well, Joe, um, maybe what the person is sharing or relating being the writings of other people, but presenting them as if they were own, maybe what those writings say is good and beneficial. Now, there is definitely an ethical problem with sharing somebody else's information, especially if it's in any depth or detail at all, but in sharing somebody's information and pretending or acting or giving other people the impression that it's your own, that that itself is a sin, oftentimes called the sin of plagiarism. But it still doesn't mean that what that person shared may not be of some benefit to you or to somebody else. So the person who's doing that plagiarism, listen, they have something to answer to God and maybe to man for, but the material itself still may be of some benefit for you or somebody else. So I, I, I hope that helps you, Joanne. Um, Terminator, hi, Pastor. Hi to you, Sean. Hi, Sean. Prayed for you a couple weeks ago. I hope that Sunday night went okay. Uh, but anyway, thanks, Sean, for writing. 
Um, William says that's an awesome podcast. Is Lance's? Yes, it is. Uh, Joel, a good podcast is Bible Thinker with Mike Winger, who also has a YouTube channel. You know, I didn't stop to consider that uh, Bible Thinker Mike Winger, as I mentioned before in the this uh, YouTube live video, that he has a podcast uh, going on, but no doubt he does. It's easy to do. We, we make a podcast out of these question and answer times. So if you want to catch these question and answer times on podcast, go to the website EnduringWord.com. It'll show you how to do it. Uh, Agnes says, do women today have to cover their hair? Some women said that they prayed about it and God told them yes. Okay, Agnes, that's a great question that I've dealt with in some kind of depth another time. But let me just give you the quick answer here. First Corinthians, isn't it chapter 11 where he speaks about the covering of hair? First Corinthians chapter 11 deals with the whole issue of uh, men and women in the church and the whole idea of head coverings. Yes, it is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And without going into the passage in great depth, you can look at my commentary at EnduringWord.com on 1 Corinthians 11 for greater depth. But let me tell you this. Paul establishes a principle in 1 Corinthians 11 that I believe God intends to be enduring through the church from generation to generation. That principle is this, that God has ordained male leadership, headship, if you will, in the institution of the church. Now, without going into greater depth, I would say that there's two institutions where God has ordained male headship or leadership, uh, and that is in the church and in the home. And there's a lot to talk about under that. It's not my intention to go into a big discussion on that. It's something to talk about another time. But that principle that God lays out in 1 Corinthians 11, I think, is enduring. God wants it to be practiced in churches throughout the generations. It, it's a lasting principle. How that principle is expressed may differ from culture to culture. In the Corinthian culture, the Greco-Roman culture of the first century, especially in Corinth, uh, you expressed being under male leadership or headship by covering your hair. That, that doesn't mean that in our culture today. In Corinthian culture, that's what it said. I am respecting male leadership and headship, the proper authorities in the church. Not, not that women are subject to men in general. Again, that's a whole other question that we're not going to get into right now but in the leadership of the church. So the expression of it may differ culturally. The principle stays the same. The principle is lasting. Okay, now to our own day, since when a woman in church wears a head covering today, nobody, or maybe I should say virtually nobody, because maybe one in a hundred thousand think this, but Virtually nobody says, oh, that's a woman who's respecting male authority. They, they don't say that. It doesn't mean that in our culture. It's important that the principle be observed, but we don't have to keep the expression of the principle as was in Corinthian culture because it doesn't mean anything in our culture. But the principle needs to be observed. Now, if a woman prays and says, God told me that he wants me to wear a head covering, I would not dispute that in the slightest. Sister, you are perfectly free 
You have liberty in Jesus Christ to wear that head covering if you want to. Just don't think that it makes you any more spiritual to do so. And don't put that as a requirement on your fellow sisters. If God has told you to do it, then do it. Fine. Just don't think it makes you any more right with God. And don't put it as an obligation on the other sisters. But if that's something that you want to do, you have the liberty in Christ to wear a head covering. You have the liberty in Christ to not wear a head covering. What you don't have liberty in Christ to do is to disregard God's order of authority in the church, and I would say also in the home. It's kind of a long answer to a good question, Agnes. I hope that helps you. Sean asked this question. Hi, Pastor. Do you think that when John pointed out the stones to the Pharisees, it was the same stones that Joshua set up in Joshua? Sean, what he's referring to here is that in the book of Joshua, they set up memorial stones that marked God's work when they crossed the River Jordan. These great stones of testimony, of uh, of witness, the Ebenezer stones, or well, not exactly, but j- just to mark out that God has has helped us. Now, the idea is that when John the Baptist spoke to the Pharisees in the early days of the Gospel record, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when John the Baptist did, he said, "God can raise up worshippers, followers from these stones." And and Sean is asking. Could it be those same stones? Now, John, I would say probably not. You're talking about a few thousand years, well, at least 1,500 years later than this. It was a long time before that. And I find it quite unlikely that the exact same pile of stones existed. Now, it would not surprise me if there was a pile of stones there meant to represent those stones that were first set up in the book of Joshua you know, in some prior 500 years before a great flood swept away the original stones, but they set up more stones after that to commemorate that. That wouldn't surprise me, but it would surprise me if it was the exact same stones more than 1500 years later. So that's my take on it, Sean. Uh, There you go. That's my opinion. All right. Daniel C says, Are you familiar with the work of Dr. William Lane Craig and his apologetics? I think it serves as a great supplement to the first line in your commentary to the book of Genesis. Daniel, I know a little bit, of course, of William Lane Craig's work. I'm not completely versed in it, but um, yes, I I know he comes recommended as an apologist. Uh, John Bracken gives the great quote of the work, the New Testament documents, are they reliable by F.F. Bruce? Thank you for that. Uh, Linda says, Pastor Guzik, this subject is vital to me right now. In April, a family member committed suicide. Please advise with words of wisdom and comfort for a grieving mother. So much of the time I'm at a loss for words, specifically the Bible scriptures, which express it is a damnable, it is not a damnable sin if it is. And also whether a person is saved or secure if one received Christ as a child, but was not living the spirit led life at the time of birth, death. Thanks. I know that's a lot. Well, Linda, God bless you. I'm very sorry for the pain that your family has had to endure. And it should be a reminder to us of the principle that I mentioned further, that suicide does not end the pain. It just puts it upon others to bear the pain. 
And man, that's that's a very difficult thing to do. Linda, I think you need to be there as God's messenger of his compassion and love. God is near to the brokenhearted. And, and when we say that God works all things together for good, for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose, that's Romans 8, 28. When we say that, we say that not just in the sense that God sprinkles magic fairy dust over everything and makes it automatically good, but rather God has, so to speak, rolled up his sleeves and come down among humanity and suffered with us. And because we have a sympathetic savior enthroned in heaven, we can come to Jesus and we can direct other people to Jesus to come and find help in our time of need. He has suffered as well. He has pain, been pained by death. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, knowing full well that he would raise Lazarus in just a few moments, but he was still grieved at the ravages of death, even if that death comes at someone's own hand, even if it's suicide. Linda, I would just like to say this, that the Bible says that the only unforgivable sin is the settled rejection of Jesus Christ. And it is possible for someone who's a believer, but is under for a moment such a cloud of deception, maybe biochemical things going on in their body, maybe just sort of fit where they're not in their right mind. It is possible for someone who is a believer and heaven bound to commit sin, even the sin of self-murder. Again, we never say that to give any kind of encouragement to someone to do such a thing. This, this outbreak of suicide, especially among young people in our present generation, it's a tragedy that Christians need to speak out to with great hope and assurance that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and the answer for mankind's pain. But, but we can say with assurance that we know that even believers on their way to heaven sin, and that sin can include significant sins. Uh, so we should not regard every suicide as equaling hell. So Linda, God bless you. And uh, I, I pray that God will bring some peace and some goodness to you in the midst of this difficulty. I'm going to have to restrict it to just a few more questions here. Um, Joanne says, the study in Hebrews is wonderful. Do you find that some tend to basically jump from Mount Sinai to the book of Revelation while skimming across the love and grace of Mount Zion? Joanne, I think that's a great description. Listen, Mount Sinai has its place. God wants us to know the law and to confront our own sin and failings at the law. Nevertheless, Mount Sinai is not the final story for the believer. We come to Mount Zion, the great work that's given to us in the new covenant. And then finally, Joel says, what does Paul mean in his reference to baptism for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, first of all, Joel and Joanne, thank you for your prayers for Linda. It makes me feel very gratified that we have something of a community here on this YouTube channel. We're really, we're not huge with numbers, but it's a nice group of people that come together to talk and to pray for each other in their pain. Um, nevertheless, Joel, this reference to the baptism for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, 29. I believe that to be a reference 
that Paul made to a pagan practice of the baptism of the dead. I don't think he's trying to say that believers baptize for the dead, but that this was something that pagans did in their own sort of ceremonial washings and such. And what he's trying to say is in their pagan custom, they recognize that there is some life after this, that there is some kind of resurrection. So I don't believe he was referring to a Christian custom, but even showing that the pagans believed in life after this. So uh, with that question, we'll end it today. But I just want to say thank you for everybody for tuning in. Thank you for your blessing. I, I just want to say this. We had a really um, generous gift given to us by a foundation, given to us on a matching funds basis. This was about three or four weeks ago. And we put it out to our enduring word family. Hey, we received this matching funds gift. W would you guys please consider, just prayerfully consider donating? I, I have to say, I was so blessed and impressed at how our enduring word family stepped up so quickly in just two works, 15 days, actually. Two weeks, we met the goal. And so thank you for that. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support of the work that we do at Enduring Word. Go to EnduringWord.com. Use the Bible resources there. Check out the YouTube channel and uh, click the like button and subscribe. I'm glad you could join us today and God bless you. Uh, uh, Neely, I'm going to get to your question next time. It's a great question and uh, we'll address these things the next time we're together. I am pretty sure next Thursday I'll be able to gather once again with you and enjoy another YouTube live session. So God bless you. Thanks for joining us today. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.